Wow. Okay, I think it's still working. All right, let me add him to the call. Welcome to episode three of the Media Studied Podcast. I'm Professor Matt Sinkowitz, coming to you from Boston College in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Nirvana Mahmoud. Hi, Nirvana. Hi, Matt. Nice to hear from you again. Yeah, we, we, we took uh, two or three weeks off, and I think that that probably will be, uh, for the summer at least, a likely schedule. Uh, I work, uh, my day job is as a professor here at Boston College. Uh, I do teach summer courses, but the summer is a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, weird for me. Uh, Nirvana, do you have uh, a different schedule in the summer, or is it just, just the same year around for you? No, the same year around for me. Right, right. Nirvana, uh, can, we, can we say what your, your profession is? I'm a consultant anesthesiologist, or uh, that's what you call in America. We call it anesthetist in Britain. Mm, yeah, and what we, we call it here is a real doctor, as opposed to me. <laughs> uh, I, I hold a PhD in, in communications, uh, so I'm, I'm a fake doctor. Uh, so this is a podcast in which we talk about media, but we try to bring it into other realms, uh, be it politics. Uh, we had an episode on elections. We had an episode on the concept of alternative media. Uh, and today, uh, I think this is in some ways the, the topic that is the most natural fit for for me and you to discuss, given who we are in the world, uh, and that is the question of media and religion. Uh, we should uh, we should give a little bit in terms of, of housekeeping here at the beginning. If you're interested in the show, please uh, head over to iTunes, give a review, uh, subscribe. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm at Media Studied on Twitter, and Nirvana is uh, at Nirvana underscore one. Is that correct? Correct. So, uh, so you can go, go there. You can look us up. I'll have, have some understanding of who we are. Uh, but when you look at our profiles there on Twitter, uh, you will see that we are coming from significantly different places. And that's part of why I was attracted to the idea of working on this show uh, with Nirvana. Uh, so, Nirvana, I first contacted you, and we'll do this somewhat uh, autobiographically. Uh, I first contacted you a few years back because I was teaching a course on globalization and the media, and I wanted somebody uh, to come kind of live from uh, the world of, of blogging and reporting on the Arab Spring and the aftermath thereof and the ongoing problems with it. Uh, and so I contacted you, and I guess I'd like to start by just uh, uh, talking through that moment. What did you think when you saw me contacting you? Uh, well, the first thing I just looked at your profile, and I must admit, uh, your profile uh, put a smile on my face because mm. it was completely different than what I expect or I'm familiar with. Um, you put a professor, which is fair enough, uh, Middle East politics, great, and then you put a left wing, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. modern Orthodox Jew. Um, uh, I mean, I am coming from the, Egypt or the Middle East, and uh, we either have left wing or Orthodox Muslim. Right. You don't have left-wing and Orthodox Muslim together. It's just a little bit different in my part of the world. And I was intrigued by this um, combination that uh, at least people in America, whatever face or background they are, they can be religious, but they can be left-wing or um, I mean Republican or right-wing or a bit in the center. Uh, I wish we have something similar in my part of the world. It will help politics and evolution of the region a lot, in my opinion. Right. Now, I think it's important to note that that, um, that that there is a contradiction. And I even make a note that this is uh, this is sort of unusual uh, for me in, in my profile. But it is true. I'm not alone. Uh, so uh, Nirvana is referring to the, the fact that I, on the one hand, am uh, I'm a, what, what we describe here, at least as a modern Orthodox Jew, uh, which means that uh, I keep the Sabbath, for example. I, I don't use uh, um, uh, electronic items. I don't work uh, as that's defined in religious uh, Jewish law on the Sabbath. Uh, I keep kosher. Um, I go to synagogue regularly uh, and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, I am uh, at, at the very least the Democrat and probably lean further to the left than that. Uh, you know, at my my synagogue here in Boston, uh, I'm in the minority, but I'm not alone. There are certainly a number of us who consider ourselves uh, fairly devout, religious, observant Jews uh, and people who are utterly opposed to the sort of conservatism that you see in the, the sort of fanatical side of all religions, uh, Judaism included, but also Islam, also Christianity, Hinduism uh, and beyond. Uh, where do you stand? If, if now, you, you know, we, we've discussed me a little bit and I'm happy to go further into it. Where, where do you stand religiously, Nirvana? 
Uh, well, I am Muslim. I grew up as Muslim, but uh, I also happy that I had the opportunity to grow up in a Catholic school. Uh, I grew up in an Italian school in Cairo, um, which um, had uh, girls from different backgrounds. We had Muslims, we had uh, Catholic, and we have Coptic for, um, girls as well. So I was exposed to various type of um, uh, of non-Muslim into in my class. I also uh, grew up in a neighborhood in Cairo called Heliopolis. And Heliopolis, um, in comparison to the rest of Cairo, have more numbers of churches and uh, various type of grand, really beautiful churches. So we had two, or we still have, um, two Catholic churches, one Armenian, and different Coptic uh, Orthodox churches and and Protestant churches as well, mm. um, and I felt I felt that enriched the culture in my neighborhood and the interaction. We, we a lot of people grow up in in that part of Cairo. Don't feel that non-Muslim are aliens, uh, mm. unlike various parts of Egypt. I didn't see a Jewish synagogue, and I'd never visited any synagogue in Cairo. Although there are some, but they are mostly closed. And the first time I visited a synagogue uh, was only less than nine years ago, ten years ago, when I was in Prague. Uh, then I visited various synagogues in Budapest and uh, uh, in Cordoba in Spain, but it was like an alien concept. It was like, wow. Um, I was intrigued uh, about the similarity. And then I start to read about uh, Judaism a little bit more, and I start to become more familiar of the division and who is the reform and who is the orthodox and, and all this stuff. I am personally religious, but I don't subscribe to a lot of the orthodox following. And in fact, I I dispute it completely. And I read that I grew up with the Quran, with the Hadith, and I grew up with a feminist mother who um, taught me the Quran in a different way. Well, I think I think that leads us into a, a topic of discussion that I've been meaning to bring to you for, for quite a while, uh, sort of tying I think both of our of our personal. Uh backgrounds in terms of religion into, uh, in this case, the realm of media representation. It's an old article. It's from April, but I think it's it's uh, it's evergreen. It's it's timeless to discuss. Uh, and we'll link to this in the show notes. It's a, a very simple little piece. It's from the New York Times. Uh, and the headline is, A Few Miles from San Bernardino, a Muslim prom queen reigns. And it's got this picture here of Zarif uh, Shalabi. Sorry if I, I stumbled on the name. Uh, who is a, a student at, uh, at at a high school in San Bernardino? She won uh, the prom queen uh, award, uh, and it's got a picture of her her dressed with her hijab or her her full 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 uh, cover, and. Uh, uh, it's this sort of glowing story talking about how her friends, and uh, this is in the wake, of course, of the San Bernardino uh, terrorist attacks, that her friends uh, sort of uh, got behind her in a campaign to uh, have her uh, win the election for prom queen. Uh, and on the one hand, I, I see there are moments of this that are awfully... Uh, 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 they're a little bit condescending even. So we've got uh, what are presumably these non-Muslim girls uh, sort of donning uh, hijabs in uh, in uh, solidarity uh, with Zarifa. And uh, there are moments of it that, uh, that do seem a little bit condescending to me. But at the same time, my original reaction to this piece was that this is good. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I like to see. Uh, I, I, as both uh, a both a person who's a member of religious minority that happens to wear a uh, a, a special piece of headgear, right? Uh, I, I wear a yarmulke. Uh, I, I liked the idea just on that level of seeing somebody who who is sort of out about her religion uh, uh, to be uh, 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 put into this this sort of story. Uh, and then as a media professor, as somebody thinking of representation, my original thought when I looked at this was that, yeah, this is nice, right? The, the biggest concern we have often when we look at media representations uh, is the problem of essentialization in that, uh, you know, we don't tend to like it, uh, people who are media critics, they don't tend to like it when we see a story and it feeds into some essentialized, you know, stereotype uh, of a certain group of people. Uh, and even if I found the story a little bit condescending, a little bit hokey, uh, at the very least, it was busting through a discourse which says that Muslim Americans can't be part of mainstream American culture. Uh, and, you know, that's something that I, of course, disagree with vehemently. Uh, and I apply to, you know, myself and my son. I, I hope that my, my son can be a part of, I mean, I don't I mean, probably not prom queen, who knows. Uh, I hope that he can be, uh, you know, a mainstream part of American society while wearing a yarmulke. So I read this article and thought, 
fantastic. And then I saw your Facebook response to it, and you really didn't like it. Is that correct? Yes, correct. All right, uh, let's discuss. <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, I perfectly understand where you're coming from. And I initially uh, uh, admit I had a mixed feeling about it. Uh, if I read the hijab, the, this article without the San Bernardino uh, case, I probably, um, maybe A, I will not care much, but B, uh, I will, um, maybe I will be more furious about it because I understand where you're coming from because obviously there was this essentializing that all Muslims are radicals. So it's good to balance that negative image that there are some Muslims who are integrating from Queen, whatever that is. Um, and uh, it's good to see the community is diverse and, uh, and I believe that is very important for America. Nonetheless, I have strong belief that veil is uh, the Islamic veil is not a national or an ethnic costume, mm. uh, and it is just a code of worship. Meaning, uh, it's uh, it has no relation to uh, whether the girl. Uh, I mean, can I jump in quickly, Nirvana? I just want to clarify a point. Sure. So, is your problem with the story uh, Zarifa wearing the hijab as prom queen, or the part which kind of got me a little bit and made me uh, slightly uncomfortable, uh, which was with her non-Muslim friends donning it as, as you know, th they would say solidarity, you might say as a costume. Uh, does, does Zarifa herself wearing it as prom queen bother you, or is it her friends that that put on the, the hijab? No, Zarifa herself. Okay, so I have no problem with any girl wearing the hijab. Okay. I have no problem with that. What I, I fear about it is the media coverage. Is You say essentializing Muslim as radical, but this article essentializing Muslim girls as should wearing the hijab, which alienate the like of me who are not wearing the hijab. I wonder if Zarifa, the same girl, without, if she was still a practicing Muslim, but not wearing the veil, would the article even, or the editors, or the reporter even bother about her? And that's a bit I'm worried about, or feel uneasy about. Yeah, I don't yeah. American to see all Muslim girls as must wearing the hijab, because I don't believe this is true. No, I think that that's actually really uh, that that uh, is a good corrective to to my response, uh, Nirvana. I'm actually a. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly persuaded. I, 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 there are elements of what I said before that, that I want to stand by, but I think you have opened up this in, in a, a new direction that I really appreciate. So my concern, of course, as you said, was that we have this one discourse, uh, this one discussion, this one tendency to describe all Muslims uh, as, you know, you might say terrorists, I think more as just being apart from mainstream American society, which is not true. Um, the Muslim community in America is often, for the, for the most part, is very well integrated. Um, there's exceptions with every group, but it, it, is, it is not true. But yet, in the media, we often hear stories of, you know, Muslim communities that are somehow uh, not integrated or people who aren't integrated. That, that, that tends to be what draws the attention. My first thought was this went against that discourse. But what I was not looking for uh, was this second discourse that you described, which is uh, sort of defining a Muslim woman. And so basically what, what I think you're, you're telling me uh, is that her Muslimness is only coded through yes. the veil, that were it not for the veil, we wouldn't see her even as a Muslim. And that is a big problem. Is that is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And I, let me just, I, what I feel uh, uncomfortable with is that now we have a right-wing media who portraying all Muslim as terrorists like the San Bernardino killers or criminals, whatever you call them, or the other, the left-wing progressive media looking for cool Muslims to give uh, and write stories about them. But the vast majority, as you said, of American Muslim are not uh, are, are neither nor. Uh, they are loads of American Muslims who are not wearing the hijab, uh, but they are well integrated and still practicing their religion, actually. Uh, and nobody wants to talk about them because they are not cool any or interesting or attracting enough readers. No, I think you're right. And I think it really points to uh, a failure of metaphor, perhaps on, on my part, uh, also perhaps a, a sort of shallowness of my original reading. But uh, there is, of course, a similarity here, which I fixated on, right? I uh, I looked at it as uh, somebody wearing religious headgear, which is something that I, uh, in my head, I associate uh, with, with Jewish men uh, and Jewish married Jewish women often cover their hair as well. I, but... 
at the same time, everybody knows that there are all sorts of different Jews in the United States, people with different sorts of observances, uh, who are Jewish, right? And Jewishness is not defined by wearing a yarmulke. Uh, in fact, Jewishness is generally uh, in America thought of as a fairly secular uh, community uh, in, in which people are not openly religious. So to me, the idea of being openly religious actually expands the discourse, right? If there was a picture of a, of a Jewish boy wearing a yarmulke, uh, to me, that would expand the discourse of, of Jewishness in the United States because uh, there's plenty of other, uh, you know, kids named Noah Cohen or whoever who are very obviously Jewish who are, are seen in the newspaper or, you know, play sports or, you know, actors, all these different things. Uh, and they're, they're Jewish, not wearing a yarmulke. It would expand the discussion uh, when we see Jewish boys wearing yarmulkes as part of mainstream American society. But what you're saying is that we, you don't have that, that middle space when it comes to Islamic representation, uh, that right. you just have the two extremes and anything that plays to, and they're not extremes even, they're just sort of two different oh. lanes, right? The lane of, well, one is extreme, one is the lane of the extremist, and the other is the lane of the hijab-wearing Muslim. And so yes. we need the middle. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I, I met loads of American Muslims who are far more liberal than me. Uh, it was uh, intriguing and, uh, you know, exciting as well to meet them. But they are still very proud Muslims. Uh, and these are, those are the people who, I think, I hope the media focus on them as well, without ignoring any other uh, aspect of Muslims in America, those who are rejecting the society and those who are embracing the religion and see the veil as a must. I have no problem with all those, providing that all factors, all colors are represented. Well, that's right. And, and in, in terms of media studies, we often, we often refer to this as the burden of representation, uh, that when you have a relatively uh, light representation of a group of people, each individual instance takes on a lot more power. Uh, and there has been noted a, a dearth of discussions, representations, television characters uh, who are Muslim, and those who are Muslim tend to be portrayed uh, either as the, the sort of extremist bad guy. Uh, there's a lot of books written about this that, uh, that uh, persuasively show that that's a Hollywood tendency. And now you're pointing to a new addition to the world of Muslim representation, uh, but it's in some ways equally limited. It's in some ways uh, it takes on that, that, uh, uh, that burden. It seems to be more important because there are relatively few Muslims, and then it seems to perhaps re-essentialize Muslims uh, as people who practice religion in a really specific kind of way. Uh, that's, uh, that's interesting. If you, if, you want to, uh, if you want to jump into this conversation, uh, please send us a tweet. Uh, let us know you're listening. Let us know you're interested. Um, I think uh, I think I've been I've been uh, swayed fairly uh, considerably by Nirvana's approach. Yet at the same time, I have this sort of uh, nagging feeling that any Muslim representation that goes against the really sort of ugly element is something that I'm, I'm open to. But I totally see where you're coming from, Nirvana. Uh, let's uh, let's take a break here, uh, and this might be I don't know how this transition is going to go. Uh, we're going to bring on a guest for the for the second part of our show today, uh, and it's going to be. Uh, Ambassador Alberto Fernandez. Uh, he's going to talk to us about countering uh, extremism. Uh, do you think that, uh, do you want to do a little preview of this, Nirvana? Do you, do you expect that uh, uh, we will be uh, discussing uh, is Islamic uh, extremist uh, representation uh, with, with, with uh, Ambassador Fernandez? Yes, uh, I have to say Ambassador Fernandez is a very impressive man. And uh, whatever, it's not about his views or his position. It's about his expertise. Mm. Uh, f uh, he know the Middle East m like he know his own house. He his Arabic is perfect. He visited uh, places in the Middle East that Arab and Muslim themselves never been. Uh, that for me very impressive for a Western man. Yes, his job as a diplomat have dictated that, but a lot of diplomats stay in their own embassy or in the comfort of the city. And don't do much exploration. He did. He he done his homework, and he obviously and clearly trying to understand the region very well. And that's why I value his experience and his views. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna bring him on in just a moment, and uh, we'll see where it goes. And uh, uh, like I said, reach out to us on Twitter if you're interested in joining the conversation. 
And now we are proud to welcome to the show Ambassador Alberto Fernandez. Uh, I have sitting in front of me here uh, Alberto's resume, uh, and it is it is quite something. It's I could never do justice to it on, on, over the course of, of a short podcast. I'll give a few highlights here. Uh, he is the vice president of the Middle East Mem- uh, Middle East Media Research Institute. Uh, he's a member of the board of directors of the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. Member of the Public Diplomacy. Council. Uh, he served as ambassador to Equatorial New Guinea, uh, and he worked for the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum and Sudan, and a whole bunch of other stuff, mostly mostly in the Middle East, but also beyond. Uh, welcome, and thanks for coming on, Alberto. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. And uh, uh, Nirvana, you you uh, is this your first time talking to Alberto Nirvana, or do you guys go back further? It's true. I would write that in my diary uh, <laughs> that uh, on the 9th of June, <laughs> 2016, I spoke to Alberto. <laughs> so, so uh, Nirvana and Alberto have a, a long social media interaction. Uh, this is the first time w- with uh, with actual voices going on. Uh, I'm I'm personally most excited to hear you two talk. I do want to start off uh, with uh, with a, a sort of direct media topic because I know Nirvana wants to get into some some politics and uh, uh, some uh, other things as well. Uh, the topic of our program today is religion and media, uh, and uh, of course, when you're working in the Middle East, those two things are are ever present. They're they're very important, uh, and uh, I do want to discuss uh, your work a little bit with the Middle East Media Research Institute. Uh, it's something that I'm very familiar with. I've done some research on uh, some organizations that that uh, are affiliated or work in in uh, sort of similar areas. Uh, first thing I'd like to do is just give you an opportunity to discuss what memory does, uh, and then we can talk a little bit about how it uh, how it represents the the Middle East back to the United States. So, so uh, Alberto, can you just give us a little uh, idea of what memory is and what you do there? Well, memory has been around for almost 20 years, and the, the idea is that uh, memory is a nonpartisan, independent research center, a think tank um, uh, that monitors and analyzes media in the Middle East, mostly in Arabic, also in Farsi, and occasionally in Turkish and Urdu, uh, and now also in Russian. We have memory Russian. Um, and translates that material, analyzes it, and um, uh, disseminates it in Western languages, principally English, but also French and Spanish. Um, the idea is that there is a reality that occurs in the language, the discourse, uh, a debate that occurs in the language, which is not always seen in the West. So what we try to do is to at least present a slice of life um, a, a, a view on the reality occurring in the region, in the language, by people talking, people who are talking to each other uh, in that language. I think it, it probably was influenced. There's a there's a famous, rather notorious um, uh, journalist in the Arab world uh, named Abdelbari Atwan, based in London, and he famously said once. I say one thing in Arabic and I say something else to English language audiences. I think it's that kind of mindset that probably was the genesis for memory many years ago. Years ago, although I've only been with memory for the past year since I retired. Mm. Now, I, I teach a course uh, on global media. I, I, I often discuss uh, uh, sort of this this process of remediating uh, media from different places, particularly the Middle East. And I always find memory a difficult institution to, to grapple with. Uh, and I just want to sort of get through some of my ideas about it. I'm sure Nirvana has different ideas. So on the one hand, it's it's a very compelling uh, argument that, uh, as you note, that, that uh, uh, there is a tendency throughout the world, including in the Middle East, to... Uh, Perhaps present one face uh, locally and another face internationally, Uh, and of course that the clips that we see on memory are without doubt they're authentic and they are often rather disturbing. Frankly, it's often uh, particularly uh, in terms of religious extremism and and sort of relationship between religion and violence really really striking. That's the one hand, and I, I. absolutely see the value there. The other side of it that always makes uh, me and I think often students uncomfortable uh, is that it, it, you, you describe it as a slice, uh, which it is it, admittedly just a slice, but it tends to be a slice that only or maybe not only, but largely includes the sort of uh, extreme uglier 
aspects of Middle Eastern media. Uh, for example, when, when you were to, if you were to watch uh, just memory clips and feel like you're getting insight into the world of Middle Eastern media, uh, you wouldn't realize that so much of, of uh, Middle Eastern media is mundane or it's reality shows or game shows or uh, boring newscasts or whatever the case might be. Do you have any, any thoughts on this idea of, of is there a responsibility to have more balance, not in terms of both sides of these issues so much as to show a broader piece of what uh, the Middle East is like through the media? Well, I mean, I think what the question you're raising is one that can be asked of any media outlet. Why do you show this and not show that? Mm-hmm. You know, you could ask the same thing of the New York Times. Um, so, so everything that appears in the media is always mediated. There's always a choice that takes place. My, my response to people that say that is if you want to put out the mundane, boring things that, uh, that uh, uh, are not newsworthy, go ahead and do so. Mm-hmm. For example, I mean, you know, one of the things that memory covers that doesn't get as much coverage as the negative stuff is memory covers the voices of reformers, mm-hmm. the voices of secularists, the voices of liberals. You can go on memory and hear, for example, the commentary of someone like Turki al-Hamid, the, the Saudi reformer and liberal. Um, you're going to find that in memory. You're not going to find that in a lot of other places. So, you know, people don't like our choices. It's their right not to like them, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a free world. And, you know, we look for things that are interesting. There is, unfortunately, a lot of bad stuff to cover in the Middle East. But, you know, even there, sometimes we actually don't even cover bad things because they've become so common. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a notorious hadith uh, that's used about the, it's, it's the Gargad tree hadith. And it's about, you know, a tree at the end times telling uh, the Muslims, oh, Muslim, come out and there's a Jew behind me. Kill them. Um, you know, we've done two or three clips uh, about people saying that. It is so common, it is so ordinary and so ubiquitous that when we see that these days, we we actually don't cover it because we've done it two, three times in different circumstances. Mm. It's actually so common. So actually there's a lot of, yes, there's a lot of mundane, ordinary things. There's a lot of people saying, you know, people are people and people say the same thing everywhere. There are the voices of liberals and there are the voices of extremists and, uh, and, and fanatics. You're always going to have to make a choice, just like any other media outlet, just like any podcast or, or thing does. No, absolutely. And uh, when- I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, did you have something else? No, no, go ahead. Okay, so and, and uh, I'll, we'll, we can move on. I want to push back on one small thing, and then Nirvana can jump in. Uh, and so I, I take your point. I mean, there's absolutely uh, all all media is editorial, right? There, there's there's no such thing as, as unmediated uh, representation of reality. That's true. Uh, but the one little push I want to give is, you know, you mentioned the New York Times, and and yeah, the New York Times is limiting the worldview uh, that that its readers are getting. Uh, but you know, most people who are reading the New York Times have a, a broader sense and more exposure to other aspects of, let's say, American media. There might be some people out there who only read the New York Times. That's all they know of American media, but that's uh, that's a pretty thin slice, and it might be a thin enough slice not to worry about. The concern here, uh, if if we were to give it its, its it put it in, its, uh, I think, its strongest light, is to say that an organization like Memory is, for many people, the only window that they have into the world of Middle Eastern media um, and Middle Eastern Maybe I would even say Middle Eastern culture for for at least a, a number of people uh, because it's far away because it's in another language. Uh, wh- does does that does that ring a bell to you? Does that work with you? What do you think of that idea? Well, I mean, again, you know, it seems to me that people are consuming. If they're interested in the Middle East, they're actually reading all kinds of things in English. Uh, so even there, people are making a choice. I mean, if you're reading coverage of the Middle East, say. In, uh, in in the New York Times or in the Nation, you're going to get a different a different view than maybe if you're reading uh, National Review or or the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 Spectator. So everything always has, a, of course, a uh, you know a focus. Um, I, I would not tell people to look at only memory. You shouldn't look at only anything. When it comes to coverage uh, of Middle Eastern media, though, there isn't. There isn't so much else out there. There's certainly things you can find in the world of scholarship, but uh, there's not a whole lot else to to go to if you don't speak uh, the languages. 
well, you know, you can only do what you can yeah, do. Yeah, no, that's that's the... at the end of the day. I mean, you know, like I said, uh, it seems to me that uh, the, the criticism is that is something that can be made across the board when it comes to actually to not just to media but to research organizations and um, uh, you know, and a wide range of you know, why do people talk about this and not about that? You know, why do you focus on this and not about that? So anyway, uh, we do the best we can. We try to put a lot of material out. Uh, you know, we uh, we encourage people to trust but verify, and um, and and you know, and, and try to do the best best job we can with what we have. Right. Uh, Nirvana, how are you? Uh, can I comment first about memory? Please. If that's all right. Yeah, please. Um, well, I know memory was around for years and years. Um, for us Arab or Muslims, uh, memory when it first. Um, appeared, uh, we describe it as the one which uh, make us feel naked, like uh, suddenly the outside world can read the stuff which we can only read in Arabic and thank God that nobody else is listening or watching because it's so embarrassing. Uh, and yes, the Middle East is is a region which have no democracy, have have gone regressively downhill. So the media in the Middle East, uh, I mean, I'm sure even the most uh, enlightened pro-Middle East Westerners will struggle to found material, Arabic material from the Middle East, which is uh, not bad or not irritating, if I may say. Having said that, memory in the last few years, especially after the Arab awakening, and I don't call it a spring, um, have become very important because it highlights the things which we liberal Muslims are trying to say and nobody, sometimes, very few people believe us. So when we say Islamists have dualism, uh, People say, oh, you're just saying that to paint them in a negative way. But you watch the video and you see what they say in Arabic and people start to realize or believe that we are not biased. It is actually happening. And then the, IS, the rise of ISIS and other radical groups have also made the work of memory very important because it highlights the theological justification of these kind of groups and actually push Muslims to think deeply, soul-searching about their religion and how to differentiate uh, between what I as believe and what us as Muslim believe. And sometimes the things we used to take for granted, we start to question it. So I would say that there is a lot of Arabs and Muslims who are start to watch memory from a different, completely different perspective. Uh, not just the Westerners, if 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 you if I if you see what I mean. And I think that's a hugely positive rule. Um, but if you want, if we're going to blame memory for its selectivity, we, we, I mean, there is the work of memory can be done by any other organization. I mean, uh, they, they, I mean, if the people want to uh, seeing a missed opportunity or missed point and they want to highlight it, by all means, pick up the video. I will work. I mean, I watch media, Arabic media, all my life. I will be struggling to find things positive in my Egyptian TV, to be frankly honest, to broadcast it to the world. And if the things is positive, it's probably 20, 30, 40 years ago, not today. But having said that, there are some things positive, and maybe other groups can work hard and try to illustrate it. Memory, the, memory is not just um, uh, franchising the market. The market is open for all. No, and that, but that, and that, that's very much the uh, where it becomes sort of difficult. And that uh, you know, if it's a matter of positive versus negative, you could sort of see where there would be interest groups uh, interested in, in pursuing both sides. If it's extreme versus mundane, there's often not a space for uh, the mundane uh, in the media sphere. Uh, and uh, you know, my uh, look, I, what, what you're saying, Nirvana, is very compelling. What you're saying, Ambassador, I, I, is very compelling in, in many ways. Uh, I the only thing that that and I don't blame memory for this the thing that I think is somewhat unfortunate uh, is the uh, common perception that all that that the that the uh, that the totality of Arab media uh, and Middle Eastern media is uh, the sorts of things you see on memory uh, with uh, little attention paid to the tremendous uh, entertainment programming uh, the sort of often very dull um, uh, procedural programming and you know I, I don't think it's memory's job to get to get that out but I don't know whose job it is. 
Uh, it, to be fair, if you check memory today, you will find that uh, they they translated a video of an Egyptian lady who was uh, an ex-presidential candidate who openly blamed, uh, um, op- openly condemning the attack in Tel Aviv. Right, right, so that's right, something right. positive. Yeah, yeah, no, the positive. Yeah, it's it's to me. My, my concern was it's not even a concern. The thing that the thing that that makes me wonder is is more about the uh, that we know that you know if you're sitting in America, you know American, and you assume that European media is mostly full of boring entertainment programming. Uh, and in my experience, that is a lot of Middle Eastern media is kind of boring entertainment programming. Uh, and that disappears. And w- when I give talks about uh, Middle Eastern media, they're sort of shocked to hear there are game shows and this kind of thing. Uh, but but a nice conversation. And, and Ambassador, thanks so much for for, uh, for being a part of that. Uh, Nirvana, I know you wanted to ask some more specific questions about uh, Ambassador Fernandez's work uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, you, want, you want to jump in with some of those questions? Sure. Uh, uh, Alberto, I would like to ask you first, w- tell me about your first trip in the Middle East. Uh, which part of the Middle East you visited for the first time? And what was your first impression? What things you had it as a perception and how your perception have changed uh, or had changed after that visit? Well, a, a little bit of background. I was I was always interested in the Middle East as a teenager. Um I was fascinated by the history of the Middle East, by the culture, by the Arabic language. And so when I was 18, growing up in Miami, I'm from uh, Miami, Florida, um, I joined the U.S. Army to learn Arabic. And so I first learned Arabic in Monterey, California. My teacher was an Egyptian, uh, Nabil Faltas. Uh, He was my first Arabic teacher. And then I had a Lebanese guy. then I, you know, I, I got out of uh, got out of the military, went to college, got my BA and MA, and then joined the Foreign Service. My first assignment was Abu Dhabi, uh, so that was the first time I set foot in the Middle East. Was uh, March 1984. But for me, I tell you, and you might find this interesting, Abu Dhabi. I did two tours in the Gulf. Is interesting, but I didn't feel that I was really deeply in the Arab world. Until when I was in Abu Dhabi, I had to do a trip to uh, Cairo, 1984 in Cairo. And I went to Cairo and um, I went to, you know, two parts of Cairo. I went to Al-Fustat and uh, what's what's often called Islamic Cairo as well. And that's when I really felt the... uh, the, you know, the kind of the reinforcement of all my years of study, of all my interests in the region was walking by myself in the streets of Cairo in both Al-Fustat and seeing the Coptic churches, the first mosque built in Egypt, the Amr ibn al-As mosque, and the great synagogue. There's a great synagogue there, the Ben Ezra synagogue. And yes. then this beautiful area of Egypt, which is filled with Mamluk uh, architecture as well. Uh, so that was my first time that I felt really moved and uh, and uh, uh, compelled and captured by the Arab world and by the Middle East. Wow. Okay. Uh, as a Catholic, uh, how did you? Again, just not just necessarily the first visit, but further visits, how your impression of Christianity in the Middle East, I mean, you obviously grew up in America, far away, the Christianity in America is completely different, Uh, and then here you are landing in the Eastern Christianity turf. Uh, How did you feel about that? What else, what things catch your mind about it, and uh, what was it like you never know, and then you start to see in reality? Well, I already I already had a bit of exposure from uh, from the Eastern Church because I was always interested in that topic. I've always been interested in the topic of religion, of uh, Christianity, of Islam, of Judaism, the issue of faith, both as a believer and as a student of religion. It's always been something that has been very interesting to me and very moving to me. And um, I actually... Um, did my master's thesis many, many years ago on a book by uh, Pope Shenouda. Yes. Uh, in uh, 1983, when I got my master's. And uh, one of my closest friends when I was in college was a Jordanian Christian. In fact, he was the best man at my wedding, Emil Haddad. So I had, 
even before the State Department, uh, I had ties to um, Middle Eastern Christianity. So for me to go there and see that was fascinating because it was to see, as you said, an, an, a part of Christianity which people in the West don't know. There is, of course, a completely mistaken view in the West that some, somehow to be Western and to be Christian is the same thing. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the West is largely postmodern, uh, agnostic, if not atheistic. And Christianity, of course, is a global religion, as Islam is. And, um, you know, so to see it within the, within the perspective of African Christianity or Middle Eastern Christianity was, for me, very empowering as a Latin Catholic. Wow. I mean, I must admit, uh, briefly, I just want to share the same experience. When I visited Jordan, I visited Mont Nebo. And uh, you stand on the top of the hill to see the Holy Land. And this um, very powerful moment was for me, despite I'm not Christian. And uh, uh, it's just highlighted to me the depths of ignorance. I mean, the West don't know much about Eastern Christianity, but also the Muslim of the Arab world don't know much about their own neighbors, friends, fellows, and the countrymen. And that brings me to the second question. How do you explain the assault of ISIS against Eastern Christianity in particular? Because now in Iraq and Syria, uh, I mean, there is a massive chunk of history have been erased. Yes, yes. Well, it's as you as you know, it's connected to the um, to the uh, the rise of a particular worldview. Uh, you know, we call it Salafi jihadism. Uh, yes. That that's the reason for this incredible, incredible, horrific violence and hatred that you see. I would just push back a little bit on something you said. Is there used to be, uh, you know, not to idealize it, but. If you look at the Arab Muslim world of 50 years ago, there was more understanding on both sides, more understanding of Muslims, of their neighbors. There was a kind of a more open society. If you look, as I love to look at uh, Egyptian movies of the 1940s or 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 media from uh, Bilad al-Sham, you know, the Levant from Lebanon and Syria... You, you see a different world, a world that with all its faults was more open, more pluralistic, more tolerant. I mean, the problem is, of course, a specific ideology was manufactured, was generated, uh, and, uh, you know, grew in power and strength, uh, which is Salafi jihadism, and the, 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 the provat, the... Uh, the uh, tryout for what became ISIS, even though they're different organizations, actually happened in Egypt in the 1970s, when, uh, when these different Egyptian, you know, splinter groups of uh, the Ikhwan and uh, uh, that rose up, you know, Takfirwa, Jihad, or Hijra, and all these groups, what did they do? They targeted Egyptian policemen, people in authority, and Christians, they targeted Coptic Christians in the 1970s. They targeted them to rob them and to kill them. Well, the ideology of the Islamic State, the Salafi jihadism of the Islamic State, of course, is concerned, obsessed with the other, with the Jew, with the Christian, with the Shia, with the Yazidi, with the, uh, the Sufi, with the secularist, and seeks to destroy them. Um, so the fact that they had in these areas which were foundational areas for Eastern Christianity in Syria and Iraq, some of the most ancient communities that exist of Christians in the world was for them a way to show their true Islam, right? They are more authentic than everyone else. You know, uh, we say in Arabic, we say it in English too, you know, Akhtar Malik Iman al-Malik, you know, more royal than the king, more, more Catholic than the pope. So the Islamic State seeks to, to, to show its, its deep Salafi authenticity by what? By destroying the other. That means by destroying churches, by destroying archaeological sites, 
by defacing uh, you know art and all of those things it's it's a part of their ideology and it's an ideology ideological compulsion they feel to do so uh, you visited or you you worked in Sudan you served in Sudan uh, yes. I am intrigued with by that we, we claim in Egypt that we know Sudan very well but actually we don't and one of the few I I toured the entire Middle East except very few countries and one of them is Sudan so I'm intrigued to know your experience about Islam in Sudan. Uh, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I saw in your Facebook um, a, a picture of uh, a Sufi shrine. So yeah, there yeah. is a lot of Sufism in, in Sudan. Do you think this is the majority or the, um, uh, what's his name, the guy who died recently? Um, uh, the Islamist. Yes. Uh, whether Islamism is the majority in Sudan, in your views? Well, Sudan is a fascinating case because, of course, it is the country in uh, in the Arab world which has been ruled by basically the Muslim Brotherhood or by Islamists. I mean, it's not the Ikhwan, it's the you yeah. know, National Congress Party or the National Islamic Front. But it's a place where in 1989 they took power and they have power to this day. Uh, so the military has been Islamicized, the security forces have been Islamicized, the country has been Islamicized, and yet most uh, Sudanese Muslims are still traditional Muslims. Mm. Uh, they're traditional Muslims with the tolerance of traditional Muslims, with the openness of traditional Muslims. They are not a fanatical people as people. They have this terrible government which has been in power for a very long time, but even there, the fact that they've been in power for a long time means that they have also, in a way, been discredited. You know, kind of like the mullahs in Iran, you're in power for a long time and people basically think that you're a bunch of corrupt crooks that want to hold on to power. That's kind of happened in Sudan. So the National Congress Party continues to be in power, obviously President Bashir, General Bashir, uh, it, you know, is very much embedded with them and them with him, and yet they've been discredited uh, in, in many ways. On the other hand, <clears throat> Sudanese as believers, as practitioners of Islam are, you know, they, they are faithful people, and they are both conservative in their views and um, relatively tolerant, I think, of others. I think it's, to me, it's in a way, because Sudan is so huge, um, it's more, it's been less uh, Wahhabized, if you get my point. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, let's, let's uh, as we, we conclude here, uh, and thank you for these insights, uh, Ambassador Fernandez, uh, let's tie it back into the world of media. And uh, I'd just like to, to ask you, Alberto, uh, what, what is the, the story or, or a couple of stories, sort of what are the things that we simply don't hear about here? And I suppose memory does some of this work, but you could maybe expand. What are the things that we don't hear about uh, in the United States that would help us make uh, better informed uh, decisions or, or have better informed opinions uh, when it comes to uh, these uh, extremist religious groups in the Middle East that you describe? Well, I would say two things. Uh, one, and, and Nirvana is part of this, and, and one of them is this: there is uh, obviously as a result of the you know the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening or whatever this is, th there is a ferment, deep ferment in, in the region, and we see the Islamist part of it, right? We see the jihadist part of it. We see the violence. We see the extremist discourse. But what is often missed in the West is that there is an ongoing struggle by people of goodwill. I'm talking about Muslims and Muslims. I'm not talking about outside of the basically Sunni Arab Muslim world. Uh, of, of, of secularists, of liberals, of, of Sufis, of thoughtful people. You know, so all too often, uh, I mean, we talked about memory, right? Memory puts out the voices of liberals, but actually what people are more interested in listening to is the voices of extremists. We can't do anything about that, you know, that if you put out somebody saying something about, talking about tolerance and somebody saying something about extremism, the, the extremist guy may get more views. But what I would want people to know is that there is incredible ferment, ideological, religious... Uh, political ferment 
underneath, you know, underneath the surface and actually above the surface going on in the Sunni Arab Muslim world. A lot of this is bad. There are a lot of bad things. But there are heroic people fighting the good fight ideologically, politically, theologically. And they're doing it not because of the Americans. They're not doing it because somebody is paying them in the West. They're doing it out of conviction, out of their own personal uh, individual conviction. I, I think of this is great Sudanese guy who was executed 31 years ago by the, the previous Islamic government in, in Sudan, uh, Mahmoud Mohamed Taha, who, yes. sought to, who sought to radically redefine the reading of the Quran. You know, he did this on his own, and he actually paid the ultimate price. He was killed. He said, you know, the Sharia should be rejected. And the idea that Islam, that Muslims should should differentiate between Muslims and non-Muslims is to be rejected. And treating women differently than men, this is to be rejected. He did this openly. He was tried and he was executed. Um, and there are people fighting that fight to this day in very dangerous, uh, uh, difficult circumstances. They, they deserve our solidarity at the very least and our acknowledgement of the work they're doing. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, I, I just, oh, Nirvana, do you one last thing? One last yeah. question. Yeah, Ambassador, can you see uh, that Islamism will end soon, in our lifetime at least? Well, the question is soon, you know. Uh, I think it's going to end. Um, I think that there is a kind of uh, uh, a, a process of discrediting that is going on with Islamism or at least certain types of Islamism. So I see that it is, it is going to evolve. The, the challenges, and this touched on when we talked about the issue of, of religious minorities and Christians in the Middle East, the challenge is how much damage is going to be done between now and the time we reach that point? How much physical, human, social damage is going to be done? I think it's going to happen. There are friends of mine who think that this is like the wars of religion in the West, and it's going to take hundreds of years and centuries. I don't think so. I hope not. But it could be a, a matter of years and decades, certainly, before you see a kind of, a, a kind of critical mass of new ways of looking at religion and politics emerges. So I just jumped onto Twitter and followed uh, Ambassador Fernandez at VPA Fernandez. Uh, is there anywhere else you'd like to direct listeners to, uh, Alberto? That's fine. You can always uh, look at our stuff uh, on our uh, www.memory.org webpage and, uh, you know, feel free to criticize or support as you see fit. No, thank you so much for uh, for for bringing to us this uh, uh, tremendous both both breadth and depth of knowledge. Uh, uh, I can understand why Nirvana was so impressed uh, and so excited to have you on the show. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, uh, and thank you out there for listening to this week's episode or maybe this month's episode of the Media Studied Podcast. Follow Ambassador Fernandez at VPA Fernandez. Uh, you can find me at Media Studied, and you can find Nirvana at Nirvana underscore one we will catch you next episode